Padre Cigarettes, that smooth, mild flavor that helps you do the people's business, be a patriot with every puff, and enjoy Cadre Cigarettes, sponsors of the committee program. Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program with Aron Chowdhury, Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Jevat Castrati, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. We begin the show thousands of kilometers from Charlottenburg, where Aron is on his way to an important client meeting in the Free Republic of Equatorial Fredonia. But first, he has to prove his puffin has been vaccinated. No, no, no. Here's my CDC card uh, and actually my Green Pass. I have one Johnson & Johnson, two Pfizer's, and a Moderna. I'm a bit of a vaccine influencer. Oscar. Oscar? Oscar's the Puffins. Though. Yeah, Oscar's had a single shot of Sputnik, uh, and here's his little card. It's very cute. Oh, hello, Mr. Puffin. Uh, they're entitled to names, you know, and his is Oscar. As oh, yes, quite. Uh, they have given you Sputnik, poor little creature. Uh, Oscar? <laughs> For us, this is not the best one. Eh? <laughs> okay, look, there's nothing wrong with Sputnik. It's a hell of a vaccine. The EU signed off on it. I'm pretty sure you can go ahead and check that. They approved it in Bavaria, and those are actually extremely white people in Bavaria. They bought like two million doses, okay? And if it's good enough for the white people in Bavaria, I feel like it's going to be fine for us. Mr. Chodahari! Mr. Chodahari! Oh, hi. Yes, that was me on the cover of Government Videographer Magazine. And of course, I would be happy to sign your copy. No, no, no. I am Sultana Maltana, here from the National People's Republican Party. We must get you to headquarters. Ah, yes, sorry. Okay, well, I've just got this one bag here. Yeah, and then Oscar over here. Excuse me. I am the political director, not your driver. Oh my gosh, yikes, of course. Sorry, sorry, so sorry. You know, we're really quite modern in the committee. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Just, you know, I, just, I, I didn't realize. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Again. <laughs> okay, Mr. Chodohari. Now we are ready. Okay, so, so follow me. I am driving you today. But you aren't my driver. Y'all don't do the cancel thing here, right? That hasn't that's not really taken off. and Forrest Lovett. Hi, and welcome back to your committee program. We are so excited to be with you on our season opener, which is now. And let's go straight away into your global news rodeo. A roundup of world events is curated by the show's own Forrest Lovett. Let's go. Item number one, chaos five stars, Cinque Stella in turmoil, Forrest. That's not a pun and it's not a joke. It's not a thing. There's no thing there. Chaos, question mark, five stars, Cinque Stelle and Turmoil, Madonna. Uh, let's, um, this could be um, Cinque, this could be, this could be Tropo Turmoil, right? Something like that, just a little something, right? Right? Tropo Turmoil, Cinque Stelle. <sighs> 
Political Europe is reporting Cinque Stelle, or the Five Star Movement, was thrown into chaos last week after a judge invalidated the appointment of the party's leader, Giuseppe Conte. Known for their direct democracy through online voting, we've talked about this before on the show, uh, their Rousseau program, Cinque Stelle elected ex-Prime Minister Conte to be the party leader in 2021. However, a Naples court has suspended two votes, one of them being Conte's appointment. The court stated that there were grave defects in the decision-making process. Tensions within the party were already high during recent presidential elections, with party members lashing out at one another. Beppe Grillo, the party founder, the comedian, the kind of John Stewartish character, is expected to fill the leadership vacuum and to try to tackle the legal hurdles. Okay, Forrest, though. Chiquistello is an incredibly important story, so let's stay on it and let's try to craft something, you know, funny, engaging. There's something in the title that makes people want to listen to the rest. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. Item number two, free dumb. Far-right convoy shuts down Canada. The socialist workers reporting that the freedom convoy in Canada, you've all seen the pictures, has now prompted the capital, Ottawa, to declare a state of emergency. Large-scale protests began in January with long lines of semi-trucks and other transport vehicles blocking roads in opposition to mandatory vaccinations for truck drivers crossing the U.S. border. Unsurprisingly, far-right nationalist groups have mobilized around the blockades, which have surrounded the parliament building in Ottawa. The Canadian Trucker Alliance says that 85 percent uh, of the truckers are already vaccinated, and it seems most of the protesters are not truckers, but far-right organizers looking to capitalize on dissent. Uh, we're already seeing, again, some messaging about how this is going to shut down um, a lot of actual people who are not just truckers, but who have union jobs in many other parts of the supply chain. It obviously is coming from people who have money and I don't know, there's something about chaos that can sometimes just be appealing. And I feel like some people uh, who are sometimes more sensible on the left kind of looked at this and thought, yeah, you know, choke point organizing, you know, we're messing them up. But uh, this, you know, these people are not your friends, just like, just like mom said. Item three, no merci. Paris bans freedom convoy. Deutsche Welle is reporting that French police have declared a similar freedom convoy, just like in Canada, will be banned in Paris. Six separate convoys of anti-COVID demonstrators started in the south of France on Wednesday and were planning to arrive in the French capital and then on Brussels to demand an end to restriction. Authorities in Paris said they will refuse the attempts to block roads and borders at least from February 11th to the 14th. The mayor of Brussels has also stated the convoy will be banned in the Belgian capital. Similar protests have been organized around the world, taking inspiration from the Canadian convoy. I do have to say, it feels right that we ended the last season talking so extensively about Canada because we're beginning this one uh, with a focus on this oft-neglected nation when it comes to politics and not, you know, creepy stories about really oppressing indigenous people and sweeping that under the rug under the guise of fossil fuel profiting. Item four, Libya limbo, country names new PM. African News is reporting the Parliament of Libya has voted to replace its current Prime Minister with a new one, the Speaker of the House, Fatih Bashaga. According to growing tensions, no, 
adding to growing tensions. The country now has two PMs with the existing unity government, Chief Abdul Hamid al-Dabah, also holding the PM title. Both men have support from rival armed factions based in the Libyan capital of Tripoli. Just last week, Dubai's car was struck with gunfire in an assassination attempt. Bashagda's government is tasked with scheduling a new election this year to avoid further division and elect one undisputed PM. Officials want to avoid similar schism that occurred in 2014, which escalated into a civil war. A civil war that probably wouldn't have happened without certain influences from the West. And it's just interesting as we are sort of on the brink of maybe another uh, war, just sort of the promises we make, why they're made, to whom they're made, to whom they benefit, and then what happens when they are and aren't kept. It's a big mess and it's not great. Item five, along another watchtower, talks fail between Ukraine and Russia. Forrest, I don't know, it's sort of like... It's, uh, you know, the, I guess it's uh, the, the Bob Dylan song. Is that what we're doing? All right. You know what? You don't have to redo that one. We'll be fine. Item five. Along another watchtower, talks fail between Ukraine and Russia. The Guardian is reporting that no agreements were made on a day of talks in Berlin between Ukraine and Russian representatives. I want to add, I didn't know they were happening in Berlin. No one told me. I was here. The diplomatic discussions facilitated by French and German officials were the latest attempt to erase Russian and Ukrainian friction as troops assemble along the borders and missile tests are planned in the Black Sea. President Biden told NBC News American citizens should leave, should leave Ukraine now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. That does not sound hysterical at all. Uh, the British Defense uh, Secretary Ben Wallace and Foreign Secretary Liz Truss will now travel to Moscow. British British PM Boris Johnson said, this is probably the most dangerous moment, I would say, in the course of the next few days in what is the biggest security crisis that Europe has faced for decades. We've got to get it right. I mean, it's hard to argue with that. Of course, we've got to get it right. But even, you know, talking about Libya in our last one, in our last, um, what does getting it right mean? You know, what does ratcheting up the crisis with this kind of talk mean? What does it mean for people on the ground who actually will get caught up in a war? Because war is... War is not only a horrible thing, but it's the most horrible to those who sort of need it the least, right? The poor, uh, working families, people who are marginalized. This, these people are not the people who are helped or aided by war in any way. And so anything anyone does that is not to de-escalate the situation on either side should be viewed as an enemy of ordinary people. Ciao and welcome to your polling predictions on the ones updated bi-monthly by your committee program. First in Brazil, Exame Idea is predicting a strong PT Lula storm at 64% with conditions worsening for far-right Jair Bolsonaro. In France, Emmanuel Macron is the only candidate above the mid-20s with the rest of the pack including right-wing Marine Le Pen and left-wing Mélenchon at 15 and 10 respectively. Picresse, blowing in from the centre-right, is in a virtual dead heat with Marine Le Pen, while the farther and far-right political commentator Eric Zemmour is still at 13, despite predictions that this storm would dissolve, thanks to Ilabi polling. In Australia, the right-wing Liberal Party is holding about even, with the Labour opposition at 37 and 35 respectively, with the Greens and far-right barely registering as precipitation per essential report Australia. In Colombia's CELAC poll, Petro of the left CH party matches the conservative LGAC party with both clocking in at 38, but the centre-right PDO party of Shar at 16 gives the forces of the right an edge with the next highest being the ACI, or indigenous party, at 11%. The centre-right also doing well in a snapshot Kenya with Ruto of the UDA at 46% and Odinia of the ODM Liberal Party at 35%. But 
It should be noted that Wutong has been losing support at a pretty decent clip, while Odinga has been picking up some steam for Radio Africa. Costa's gamble in Portugal paid off big, with his Socialist Party gaining 11 seats, although this did mostly come at the expense of the left party, which our viewers will have mixed feelings about. Republic of Korea Real Meter poll has Yong suk yul of the conservative PPP leading DPK's Lee Jae-myung 43.4-38.1, worth keeping an eye on. Finally, in Uttar Pradesh in India we are seeing an increase in support for the SP, a centre-left party, although it falls slightly short of the right-wing NDA party and comes at the expense of another centre-left party, the BSP. This for Ground Zero Research, thank you so much and stay safe out there. Hi, welcome back to the committee program. We are here today doing a French election update in two parts. First, with Nanon Lagarde. Nanon, you've been on the show before, and you were talking to us about the popular primary, uh, which we're going to hear a lot about, and we have heard a lot about, but you have moved on and have a new project. Can you tell us uh, what you're now doing in French politics uh, ahead of this election, which is happening soon, folks, so everybody's Yeah, in. thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been working with the prim uh, Primaire Populaire for quite a long time, but now I'm more focused on uh, making sure that everybody who has the right to vote can vote because it's a huge problem in France. It's super hard to go to vote for a numerous reason. Like the the whole system is completely fucked up. Like it's super hard to find where you can uh, vote. How can you vote? And there is a lot of people who are not registered to vote and don't know about it. So right now we are having a huge campaign uh, with like an open 24-7 outline to help people doing their administrative uh, paper to be make sure that everybody who wants to vote have access to vote. And that's already a lot. Yeah, and I'm actually sad that Julia Doubleday from the show is not here because this is her number one gripe with campaigns. Uh, that's not what you're doing, but is that campaigns actually never do enough how do you actually vote stuff? Because like if you lead someone all the way to the water, but they still don't drink out of it, it's a problem. Like you actually need people to get there. Uh, let me add, look, we are here campaigners on the committee program. We are not uh, journalists. Uh, this will not be, this will be a slightly cynical thing to say, but I will tell you in much of the Anglo world and specifically in America, uh, when you're thinking about turnout and voter models, et cetera, the kind of um, conventional wisdom is, ah, the more people vote, usually the better it is for the center left and the left, because uh, you get young people and you get marginalized voters, et cetera. Uh, there's a bell curve on that in the US. That I was actually someone who, head of 2020, said all this voter enthusiasm probably means uh, it's probably decent for Biden, but also probably means there's a lot of new right-wing voters. It turned out there were, right? Like, actually, Republicans increased their, their margin. Uh, I think we saw in the UK, not only in Brexit, but then in the general election 2019, that a robust turnout is great for the, the center left and a really exceptional turnout can sometimes be uh, a, a different, go in a different direction. Populism to the right, populism to the left, we'll see. What do you yeah. think is happening in France? And also catch us up on how the election is turning out. We know, you know, mainly it's a, uh, a, a contest between Macron and Le Pen or was. Now it seems like, it, you know, he's breaking out of the pack. Weave all these things together. Turnout, audiences, who's left? 
Okay, so first, we know who is and who voting and who for they would vote if they were about to vote. So there is two bubbles, like the first one being young people, uh, students mostly. They don't have access to vote because they are moving way too much and don't know where, where they have access to vote. And those guys are voting on the left, not the center left, but the left. Like, for example, they are voting for Melanchon, uh, for, like... Uh, 80% chance of voting for Melanchon. But if we are doing this campaign directed on another type of people, who are people between 30 and 40, um, who have moved quite a lot, we don't know for whom they will gonna vote, and um, part of them will vote for the far right. So we are not working on those people and really focused right now on the student because we want to help the left win in France. Like it's good for everybody to have access to the vote, but mainly we want to win because we can't have another five year of Macron. Speaking of Macron, he is trying to start his campaign, but he's doing that in a really uh, Macron way, which means he doesn't want to have a debate with everybody. He just want to choose with whom he has access. To, he wants to have a debate. For example, there is a candidate on the far left, which call which is called Philippe Poutou. He said he he, he don't want to. He doesn't want to have a debate with him because he is the president and he's above him. We're like, hmm. and why uh, do you agree to have a debate with Marine Le Pen? Like we, it doesn't make any sense. But. For now, the campaign is super weird. Like, it's in eight weeks now, and nothing has started yet. Like, the, prim the Primaire Populaire had his, uh, the result two weeks ago, and we know now that uh, uh, Christian Taubira won and is a candidate, mm -hmm. but she still doesn't have the signature that she needs to be a proper candidate. She's still working with the Green, with Yannick Jadot, uh, to figure out whether they should merge the campaign, like nothing is, it's it's not a real. Campaign. And, and even I merging that campaign doesn't really break her out of the pack, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the polling I saw has you know Macron in the mid twenties, Le Pen at about fifteen, and then kind of everyone else hovering between like twelve and ten. Yeah, it's a super weird campaign, but there is one girl that do it. she's doing great, is Valérie Pécresse from the Republican Party. The center party. right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the center, well, right, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like Le Pen and Zamor like, seem to just pull everything to the right, so, you know, it's hard to even tell Yeah, for everybody us. moves to the right, but they are still really on the right. Like, for example, she's as, she has the same ideas as Nicolas Sarkozy, and she's saying oh, awful oh. stuff on migrants and everything. And she's doing great, because the two guys at the far right, uh, Marine Le Pen and Zemmour, they are not doing great. Their campaign isn't working a lot and people are t figuring out that they are clowns and they didn't, they are not properly people who can be president. Like they, they have problem on TV show. They don't know their files and they are not super serious, but she is good. She has a great team. Her campaign is smooth. She has no problem. She mm -hmm. managed to unite the right. For now, she is really, really good. And, as a lot of change to end up in the second term. Macron is still too, so we are facing a, a second term with Macron and Valérie Pécresse. That sounds terrifying because, you know, I think the kind of obvious, what everyone thought, referendum, which is obviously what he's trying to do with choosing who he debates, would be Macron-Le Pen, in which he's the only acceptable, even if you don't like me, I'm the only game in town, you got to vote for me. Uh, but 
it, with a more Republican uh, Party candidate, like you're saying, uh, it's certainly not in the bag for him in a second round, is it? Yeah, it's it's quite new, so we don't know how the voter will change their mind. But in a second in a second turn with uh, Valérie Pécresse on the right and Emmanuel Macron on the center right, she might win because we are a, a country where people are on the right and not on the center right, and especially this political party, people love it. It's she's really where she needs to be at the uh, right moment, with, right? The Only right, eight at weeks. The right moment. She's great, and she, her husband did some great thing on the left. We were wow, that it's it's sexist and everything, but she did really great. She sent out her husband on an, on a TV show saying that it was okay to deal with the children and the kitchen for the next five years, and people were like, "Hey, she's progressive and everything. She's the president I want to have." Well, she's not progressive at all, but she's she's so great. I'm. Well, we are a bit depressed because on the left side, nothing great is happening. Um, Mélenchon, who is super good, as uh, is not having a great campaign for now. Uh, he's meeting. It's our hard to race. catch fire twice. Yeah, even though he's still good. In uh, I, I've went to his meeting in Nantes, the one where uh, there were smell, um, there were perfume in the room, which is super new. Like it was a really great political show with perfume to help us think about the topic he was speaking about, like this, the ocean or space or. Oh, that's so interesting! Said, like yeah. olfactory propaganda. Yeah, yeah. And I'm writing this down. <laughs> yeah, it works quite well. It, I'm sure it works really w well with food in France. If you spread the smell of bread, you have the entire audience for you. Totally. But even with that, it's not working quite well. And French people are mindset are not in the campaign right now and nobody cares about it. And it's just really disappointing. And we can see that in the voter turnout uh, polls that no one care about this campaign. and not a lot of people will go are going to go vote and that's really beneficial for the left for the right who are especially because you're down on the ground working in voter edge like who are the swing voters right who are the actual people who are making their minds up who don't come from you know an ideological place where they already kind of know who their characters are the teachers okay. there are a lot of them and a huge majority of them voted for Emmanuel Macron in the uh, in last time, and right now they're super pissed because their uh, their minister is uh, has done some terrible thing uh, and is not good at all. Is being mm. awful with the with the pandemic and all of this uh, work is quite shitty. But the the teacher are on the center right most of them but right now they're super angry so the left is trying to help them become angrier and angrier in order for them not to vote Macron again and it's a lot of people and they and I think they will have a really huge part to play in the in this campaign that's interesting and then where do you find sort of you know the perennial swing voters in a country like Italy are the kind of gray economy gig worker folks uh, in France, where are those folks coming down? Folks who sort of make up a, a populist element who does sort of seem like they can go either direction when it comes to candidates. I don't know uh, that part that well. Uh, I'm... 
There is, yeah, yeah. I'm, I don't know a lot of things about people who vote on the far right in France. Like for Zemmour is really quite new and no one tends to understand who is voting for him and who is voting for Marine Le Pen. And there seems to have to, to be a lot of former left people in Zemmour uh, campaign, but I'm quite sure they will never swing back to the left. So it's, it's really new for us. Like, for example, Marine Le Pen was at the second term five years ago and she nearly won. And then Zemmour appeared and we thought, okay, he's going to steal all of her votes. But no. He's making his own vote. He has his own voter, but who are they? I can't understand who are they. Where are they from? We still don't understand them. And for now, I mean, are they of the 10 million French folks who don't vote? I mean, are these new voters who vote for him? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, a part of them, uh, but they are really, really focused on abstention. For example, if you go on Twitter and you look for who is speaking about abstention right now in France, it's only Zemmour. Uh, right. It should be Mélenchon, and because he has so many potential voters in, in the abstention uh, bubble, but it's Zemmour who is working on the abstention bubble right now, and that's why he, he looks so angry, and because he has the right uh, mindset to speak to them. But for now, I don't think he's is uh, successful at that. No, which is clearing this, you know, clearing this way for what looks like a more sensible right, but is in fact a fairly extreme right to maybe cruise through. This is a very American story. It's funny. The more yeah. you're sort of talking about this, the more, you know, uh, you know, voter registration problems. Uh, yeah, the more it starts to sound American. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's, yeah, it's really American. Like, for example... Uh, you didn't know who voted for Trump. Like you were like, who are these people? And we are the same type of uh, shock people. Like, but who are they? Who we? I've never met them. Uh, like in my life, I have friends on the right, and I know I've I've met with people who vote on the far left, far right. But Zemmour, I don't know who they are. Where they come from? And I think one thing to understand when it comes to these voters uh, that that we found, or especially with these Trump voters, is sort of values versus policy. So uh, in focus groups in Iowa with folks who voted for Obama in 2008, voted for Obama again in 2012, and voted for Trump in 2016, this was obviously people who folks wanted to have a conversation with. Yeah. What's up? So the question was, what's up? And the answer was, oh, you know, I really respected Obama and liked him, and I really liked Donald Trump's policies. And you'd be like, healthcare was a really good example. Uh, I didn't like Obamacare. You're like, well, you didn't like Obamacare, but you, which happened in the first term, and you voted for him again. Why, if you didn't like his signature move? And they because I understood why he did it. You know, his mother, she died young of cancer. She was sick. This was something that was important to him to address, and so he did his best to address it. And the fact that, you know, and I trust him, and I didn't, I didn't agree with the outcome, but, like, you know, he's a good man, and it was the good reasons. Uh, but when it comes to Donald Trump, it's like, yeah, he may be inarticulate about wanting to kick uh, migrants out of the country, uh, but it's what I actually want. And so sometimes it is funny how people can separate the sort of intention of their leader versus the policy of their leader and accept them both in different ways. And so I think people, people are more internally consistent than we give them credit for. It's just we don't understand the consistency and we think that it's political loyalty because we work in politics yeah. and this is how we work. Exactly. Yeah, you're completely right. But one thing that will happen in 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 
three weeks. In three weeks, we will have the complete list of real candidates for the presidential election because they need to have 500 signatures of local elected mem uh, people. So once we have that, the campaign can start. And right now, it's super hard to read through this campaign because we don't have the list of candidates and the topics of the campaign. But in two weeks, we will have them and we will know where things are, are can move and who can move from here to here. So for now, it's really cloudy and gassy and we're like, yeah. When do, my last question to you is, and thank you so much again for coming on, but when do people start paying attention? You know, when does the actual person, is it once there's an official list and yeah. we start to see these things come in? Uh, is there a mailer that comes out from someone? It's like, you know, we have like folks who will send out voter guides at a certain point, you know, actually physically to people and they start thinking about it. Well, it starts in three weeks when we have the proper list. And at the moment when we have the proper list, the media, there is a rule in France where you have to give the same amount. Of ah, this TV. sort of starts the campaign period. Exactly. And when that happened, uh, we can uh, all the media is only uh, candidate for the presidential election because there are so many of them and the media needs to give the same amount of time to each of them. So then the campaign starts and they are on TV and there is a, um, there is a places where they all are and they have a huge debate and then it starts. But it starts, for now, nobody cares about the presidential election. There is no scandal, there, nothing happened and it's quite late for a pre French presidential election. Normally, people would be way more into the presidential election right now when we look at the calendar, but it's not... And so we wait, we wait, we wait. But the more we wait, uh, we know that a late campaign isn't good for the left in France. And we need to have a campaign to start right now. But on the right side, they know that people will vote for them and will move. So they don't have to start a campaign too early because it's way more chance for them to, to do a mistake or whatever. So they, Time's on their side. Exactly. Oh, yes. Time is always on the side of the powerful and never of the, yeah the weaker. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. And look, uh, maybe in three weeks, we can have you on again and actually hear even more kind yeah. of what the official crystallization is and also more about how voter numbers are looking because I think that's probably a lot of the real tea leaves to see how the election will go is who are the new voters and what do they seem to care about? Yeah, we'll see. But for now, it's really cloudy. But we'll, in three weeks, everything will be, we will know how many candidates we will have on the left, maybe 200, we don't know, they still are way too much, too many of them. Do you mind if I light up a cadre? A pride and a ticket to Flavor Country. Please, go ahead. Somehow I thought you would say that. You know, sponsors of the show and all. Don't worry, Oscar, okay? Don't worry, it's just a little rain. It's the season, you know. 
So you'll see the favorables are high, but so are the unfavorables. Look, in the end, the favorables are the unfavorables and vice versa, am I right? I don't know. This sounds like the kind of thing consultants say to make money off honest folks like me. <laughs> right? No, but really, look at these mock-ups of the billboards, you see? Look over here what we did. <sighs> careful, careful. You see the obstacle, it is the obstacle. Ah, these are wonderful. I love the way the design uses Montel's bald forehead as part of the look. Yes, you see, any obstacle, even baldness, is a strong messaging opportunity. This is fantastic. I am afraid for reasons I will have to explain. It won't really work. Why? Is President Fluff a bit of a dick or something? Well, first, he is my husband. Okay, sorry, sorry. Second, he is dead. Dead? What will happen with Committee's latest late and most deceased client? Does he smoke cadres? Keep supporting the Committee program and maybe we will keep the story going so you can find out. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to the committee program and for our second part of our French election update. But first, cadre cigarettes without regrets, with self-criticism, never a rough puff with the people's cigarette cadre cigarette sponsors of the committee program. Uh, with us is Clement Poirot, who is part of the popular primary, one of the driving engines, and in fact is someone who I met as a, a bright young organizer on Bernie 2016 back when it all meant something. Clement, hello. Hi. Look, we've been talking with Nanon, uh, your uh, colleague and friend, and you know we've gotten kind of a lay of the land on the land uh, of the election landscape, um, especially that the Republicans kind of maybe have some real momentum, uh, and that you know could kind of run up the middle of the right or however you want to define that. But talk to us more about the left. You had this popular primary. Uh, how did that all turn out, and where does it stand now, 90 days away from the election? Okay, so um, we are we are um, around yeah 59 days uh, to the oh, first oh, round. Oh, sorry, yeah, 59 yeah. days to the first round, and at the moment um, the left is still in the mess. Um, the offer of the popular primary was to uh, have all the left citizens uh, affiliated. Um, uh, citizens to vote for the best uh, candidate to aggregate uh, the electorate. Uh, fact is, the boycott of some parties um, led to a result, which is uh, the proof that the citizens are very uh, strongly demanding a gathering because the candidate who won is the candidate who was supporting the idea of a gathering, um, a merge of the left um, candidates uh, toward a unique or an aggregated one to have the capacity to win, who is Christian Tobira. But at the moment, the clarity of the political test is uh, clearly not there because we have one, uh, uh, concretely, one more candidate. Uh, fact is, she is a candidate who is still um, pushing uh, all the other ones to talk, to negotiate, to find a way uh, to win together, uh, because at the moment they can't win. And especially, uh, it's something important to see. Mélenchon says he is 
capable to win. He's actually technically in a very short and narrow path, capable to pass to the second round, but he can't win by himself the second round. So, and we are here to win mm-hmm. because if we just go to the second round and get um, get defeated, it won't change anything for the daily life of French people. No, absolutely. I, I mean, you. So you think? I mean, do you think there is an anchor for a non melanchon led coalition of the left that can compete? Uh, all the way into the second round. I mean, is he st- does he sort of prove himself to be the real anchor here? Uh, or is it really a question of people just having a moment of good faith negotiating so to, see what they to sort of see what they can is add not together? Mélenchon or not Mélenchon, the question is the dynamic that can, um, um, how to say, reasonably uh, aggregate a majority of the electorate. And the current strategy uh, of Mélenchon, who refused any kind of uh, discussion with uh, other parts of the left, is I, I don't see personally, while I voted for him, I don't see personally how it can lead to an aggregated majority in the second round. On the other hand, on the other hand, you're right, some people in the centre-left are um, really in total reject of Mélenchon. And uh, this is n- n- not uh, a winnable position either. So we need to find a common ground about uh, institutions, about the modern modernization of our democracy, and to find how we make that these people talk together, find a winnable path together, there is more than one role to have in our republic. President is one of them. There is something to deal. There is something to design. And it's now or never because climate change is real. And it won't wait five more years. That's, I mean, yes. <laughs> the show, often we talk about kind of the new climate denial is not saying it's not happening, but just sort of refusing to address it aggressively enough. And I think we can see so many political parties falling short on that. And it's a shame because I do see in France sort of a more realistic uh, sort of climate policy of like, these are the real numbers and this is real being pushed in a public discourse in a way it's not, say, in Germany and certainly not in America, but there's not this political force behind it. In fact, there is sort of, as you say, on the left still has not coalesced together. Um, Let me just ask you one more question before you go, though. This was an interesting project to all of us who are trying to work continent-wide in Europe is, you know, are primaries of the left possible, etc. What do you feel you've learned from running this first one? And what would you do differently next time so that we all, when we have a popular primary in Belgium next month, we know what we're doing. And I, we're not actually having one in Belgium, I'm just an example. So my, my four takeaways uh, from this experience. First is in France, political parties are pretty weak. So actually citizens properly organized with organizing techniques are capable in a short time, a few months, less than a year, to have um, a base which is strong enough to compete in the narrative of legitimacy. Uh, In just a few months, we have aggregated 5,000 volunteers, 400,000 voters, while we had most of the political and mediatic chest against us. So that's my, my first takeaway. Uh, it's possible for citizens who want to organize 
beside the parties and the, all this uh, dogmatic approach um, to organize to win an election first. The second is that um, we don't need a candidate to win. We need ideas, process, trust, and sincerity. And this was what was combined in the popular primary. And I'm still surprised that we could have um, led uh, such an inspiring campaign without any political figure in the lead of it. Um, the third one is that uh, the way of vote is an issue and we raised it. We raised it with the majority judgment vote. It's something that clearly questioned the single name vote and its ability to um, lead to a um, real majoritarian uh, winner. And I'm very happy of that because it's a, a topic which is really uh, rarely addressed. And uh, the fourth mm -hmm. one in that uh, the current state of the media um, system with very short uh, topics, may that be in radio or in, on TV, make that it's clearly impossible to uh, reflect innovative and complex initiatives like ours with uh, such a lame approach of information which lead, uh, which gives way too much room to comment and editorial uh, while we need facts and explanations. Those are good takeaways. I mean, I think we see everywhere also the press are continuing their role as referees and gatekeepers. Even when you play this outsider game, you need a couple insider stories about how an outsider game is interesting. And before that happens, you just don't even have a toehold in the kind of public imagination in which still name ID is king. You know, if people know what's going on, they know who you are, which is why candidates tend to outperform. Uh, you know, parties, organizations, good, whether they be based in good government or not. And one, one last takeaway is uh, nearly philosophical. We were in an approach of cooperation. We were trying to find common ground with actors which are on the same part of the political test. But competition and um, lack of trust between them is so deeply enrooted in their mindsets that mm -hmm. it's very difficult to lead to a cooperation approach. While actually climate change r reminds us and forces us to find another way than competition to deliver for the best. It's true, if we can't rethink small systems, uh, it's only gonna get harder and harder, which is of course why our lack of a great response to COVID really sort of makes one a bit pessimistic about this great this great embrace of change for uh to actually improve the climate well, well we'll see what we have in us but thank you so much for coming on and uh you know kind of closing the chapter on what happened in the popular primary and setting the stage for what we hope will be an interesting election because it sounds like if it's a boring election it will be, you know, Macron-Le Pen kind of referendum. If it's yeah. a, little, a little more interesting, then it's Valerie, uh, you know, from the, the Republicans, uh, and that's sort of scary. But we still want an election where people are making a choice between maybe a true 
left candidate and Macron. And you still think there's maybe a path to this? There is. One insight for you. Popular primary is switching from a process to a movement this weekend. And we are becoming the sunrise movement of France with our organizing, with our uh, radical change uh, platform. Mm. And I do believe that we are going to make the surprise of this election in the way we approach electorate, we mobilize, we organize and radicalize the narrative. So let's keep in touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's definitely check in then before the election. This is great. That is great to hear. See you around. Thank you very much. And now, committee at the movie. Hi, and thanks so much for sticking with the committee program. We know you have many options for content to consume, and we appreciate you being here today. And of course, thanks to Cadre Cigarettes, our sponsor, that fine blend of Carolina and Turkish tobacco, which creates something uniquely Fredonian, that smooth, bold flavor and sophisticated aroma that surrounds the cities from the countryside. That's Cadre Cigarettes, sponsors of the committee program. Now let's go to the movies with committee. In this case, to discuss Squid Game. Here is the first game. You will be playing Red Light, Green Light. You are allowed to move forward when it shouts out Green Light. Stop when it shouts Red Light. If your movement is detected afterwards, you will be eliminated. Red Light, Green Light. And look, even before we get started, and as always, I would like to thank the editors of the International Magazine for this opportunity. This is where I originally was able to put this article, and it has been my arena for proper film critique, especially at this time of year when other publications would employ critics to produce best of lists and other sentimental claptrap. We are laser focused on doing the real work because we are made of sterner stuff, dear viewer. We have spent this whole year talking about how to critically watch things, and that means we're gonna systematically look at this TV series and make a clear-eyed examination of the latest small screen offering to capture the global public imagination in 2021, and that was, of course, the South Korean miniseries Squid Game. And when the time comes, we will be able to summarize the plot in a mere 20 words. Don't worry, it's not gonna be about what happens. We're gonna talk about the real stuff. And if you come from the please just let people enjoy things side of the street, fear not, there is no question that Squid Game is more than simply a satisfying diversion in tough times. It exhibits excellence. The technical aspects of the series show real chops. The acting is superb. Notably, Lee Jung-jai as protagonist Seong Gi-hoon, player 456, Jung Hae-yoon as North Korean defector Kang Sebuk, player uh, 67, and Oh Young-soo as, no spoilers, the old man, Oh Il-nam, player 001. The production design is done with extreme care and taste. It is very, very good. There are both homages inside it and innovations. Cinephiles amongst you will note, and the rest of you can take comfort in now knowing, there are striking similarities in the staircases in the arena between the set of Squid Game and the Dr. Seuss design structures in the children's film classic, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. It happens in an amazing castle 
with a tickle-em-to-death torture chamber and a 500-player piano with 480,000 keys. And on the other hand, the hopper-esque chic of neon-laden 7-Elevens and outer suburban soul are delivered in a saturated flat wide shots that harken more to the current era of smartphone cinema than to any kind of classic tradition. And also, unlike the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T, Squid Game is actually a masterpiece. But what sort of masterpiece? That's what I want to get at. There's no question that it's good. But why and how is it good, and why and how does that matter? Simply put, what I think is that Squid Game is a comprehensive artistic study of violence. Sort of a penciled-in notebook that contains sketches of the body of violence from all angles. Violence perpetrated on groups, on individuals, among enemies, and between friends. The violence of small, bloody cuts and the violence of grand, dripping slashes. Violence perpetrated by uncaring machines, inflicted lovingly by brothers for reasons both good and bad. It all happens again and again. The plot of Squid Game, that of a consensual abduction of hard-on-their-luck citizens to compete in deadly trials against one another for a large cash reward, see, I did it in 20 words, is a delicate mechanism made to shepherd the audience seamlessly from one scenario into the next without mercy and without boring us, ratching up the stakes skillfully and always, always exploring violence. The violence happens in melodramatic close-ups, naturally, but it also happens in pitiless wide shots, the latter, of course, being a more startling experience that gets to something, gets much closer to explaining something systemic. But for all that, dear viewer, we never quite arrive at anything conclusive. We are held back from learning anything, this lack being the hallmark of the modern entertainment industry wherever it thrives. The joy of watching Squid Game is in this sense the same as the Great British Bake Off or Law and Order Special Victims Unit. The exhilaration of watching process unfold competently is incredibly soothing. It's what keeps us coming back and again and again to numerous cooking channels and endless procedural dramas, police dramas. But in this way, it is mere escapism. It is most pointedly not a true critique of capitalism as it has often been advertised. Why does that matter? Why is it important to correct this misperception other than being obnoxious people who like to do things like that? First of all, look, we do this to spare people some embarrassment. For those who may have only watched a few other Korean motion pictures, uh, such as uh, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, they may quickly jump to the conclusion that there is this implicitly populist streak running through Korean culture, not realizing that a more thorough look would reveal a grand thematic breadth and topical breadth of filmmaking that is comparable to any North American or Western European filmmaking nation. But more importantly, we offer this correction because for cinema to be useful, as many of us believe it should be, it has to reflect and inject a revolutionary consciousness in the audience, and this is the tricky bit. Hollywood and modern Western cinema is set up to depict scenes of engagement, while what's wrong with our political economy and what's wrong with, uh, sorry, what's wrong with our political economy and the key to third cinema, as defined by Solana Cincatino, is alienation. Squid Game's creator Huang Dong-hoik 
clearly has some decent politics. The issue of the North Korean defector is handled delicately through clearly, uh, delicately though clearly through the lens of a South Korean citizen. Even better is a depiction of a Pakistani immigrant, Ali Abdul, player 199, who is held in unfair labor conditions and is played extremely sympathetically by Tripthai uh, Anupam. But all the empathetic plot points, a mother who needs an operation, a seemingly perfect businessman concealing a crime, the sort of save the orphanage plot points that get our characters exactly where they need to be for idiosyncratic reasons, as much as for systemic ones. For Squid Game to work, this is crucial because the ugly systemic secret is that the world we actually live in, these deadly games are would be way more meritocratic than any life lived under real capitalism. You've got a small but measurable shot at success in the game system. Probably about the same as a startup, starting on the new and exciting journey of figuring out new ways to share photos on the internet. Your percentages are the same, but the truth for most people living on our planet today is that you have zero chance. You were dead before the boat even sank. You would be crazy not to join in these homicidal activities, not because the bottom fell out of your life suddenly, but because you are fully aware that you are never going to be given a chance in the first place. Money is the only thing that makes money. The resourceful, if human, need not apply. To participate in the Squid Games is quite literally the best deal you are going to be offered in your life. Reality is exemplified by a son spending his mother's healthcare money at the racetrack. It's millions dying because the cutoff age for insurance premium reduction is altered by a small 10%. The former is engaging, the latter is alienating, though it holds a bigger body count. To dress up the guards and executioners of the gaming complex in impenetrable opaque spacesuits is the sort of alienation you'd think you'd want. But in order to have an engaging plot, those masks come off an awful lot. The humanity of the apparatus peaks through the cracks and precisely at the wrong times. And all this makes us ask the question, how do you make alienation engaging? True feelings of collective action on screen are rare. The Battle for Algiers, a famous left-wing film, famously concludes with the failure of individual protagonists but shows uh, us a collective awakening. That's not the end of Squid Game. The best player, we are pretty sure, wins. This is satisfying as a story, but falls short of implicating what ails us and does falls far short of suggesting a cure. Money is the plot point, but money is at best only a symbol of capitalism, glittering heaps of gold, crisp stacks of bills. But through the lens of a culture industry, money is a conglomeration of individual pieces representing a promise, a problem, a moment, a year. Capital is different from money. It is more powerful and it is more devious. It is a wealth that when you grasp it seems to shrink of its own accord, but when it is put in the hands of the rich, it blossoms effortlessly. In the right conditions, hyperinflation being just one, capital can make a mockery of money itself, turning the poor into millionaires without meaningfully changing their material conditions. And maybe the image of currency, the great big piles, is where we come the closest in Squid Game to a critique of capitalism. When the players die, the visible pot of money that hangs in the player's dormitory increases by the share they would have received had they all won. The reduction of these humans to a mere price point is dehumanizing for sure, but it's still, in terms of the gameplay, fair and equitable. In the true capitalist version, there would be surplus profit that someone would be entitled to upon your death. The results wouldn't simply be passed on to the other players, they would be partially absorbed by those who own the means of the game and who provide opportunity. You can imagine a speech in which the fees on the winnings are explained. We come close to these moments during Squid Game, but we never quite stick the landing.
And as we say in the United States, the only games in which close counts are horseshoes and hand grenades, neither of which are in the nine activities that these players pursue. Now, do not get me wrong, I liked Squid Game. I liked it a lot. Not since John Woo's Hard Boiled has a vision of the harm people can do to people been so carefully considered. But while Hard Boiled has deep political societal subtext, Squid Game elects to explore the permutations of conflict in a more personal sphere and makes the political personal in a way that takes the teeth out of a systemic critique. That being said, it was much better than The Queen's Gambit, but that is the story for another time. Thanks so much again for joining us tonight on the committee program. You can always support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash committee program. You can follow us on all of our social media accounts, including on Twitter, at Committee Pro, YouTube, The Committee Program, Instagram, The Committee Program, Facebook, The Committee Program. And you can actually visit The Committee Program company store now at TeePublic, The Committee Program shop. We have a couple of things. We will try to get some more. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Shavak Kastrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacopo Castelletti, Forrest Lovett, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Try and look alive out there, folks. It's later than you think. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening. 